offer homage and worship and reverence to the great God that made us and in whose sight indeed all things can be made well. In our audience today, as we come together on this occasion, we're blessed, as is often the case with many visitors, and for you, we're so happy that you've come our way. We want you to feel welcome, and we hope that you have opportunity to be back with us in the very near future. If there are any questions that we might answer about the services here or the congregation, we'd be happy to attempt to do that. Brother Arkley Billingsley is even with us today who preached here many years ago and we're happy that his health is somewhat better and that he can be with us. Also, my parents are able to be with us today and just many other visitors as well. And we want you to again feel welcome and we hope that our service will be beneficial and uplifting to each and every one of us. The question that sometimes comes to all of us as we think about the character of the church is in sometimes a relation to the assemblies thereof and that will be a portion of our study today. I've entitled the lesson, Attending to Attendance. For if we ponder and think about the character of the assemblies of the church, some of the greatest questions as it relate to the church, in fact, relate to the assemblies. For example, sometimes one appreciates the fact that we ask, who is to participate in various elements of the assemblies? When are the assemblies to take place? And what is to be done there? Has God given prescriptions about the character of what must occur when we come together in corporate worship? In fact, if you consider the brotherhood, the character of the church the world over, some of the greatest differences surround what takes place when individuals come together to worship. In fact, today as we consider those various aspects, might we begin with Psalm 85 verse 8? Where there the psalmist of the long ago made the penetrating point, I will hear what the Lord God will speak. The psalmist was intent on hearing what God said, and he was intent upon placing within his life and heart the nature of what God had said, so that he could be pleasing, and so that he could be right in the sight of the great God of heaven. The very thought then about the nature of the assemblies today Though many questions might be asked, let us, in fact, surround our time by thinking of this one. What about my attendance at those assemblies? Is it necessary to attend all of the assemblies of the church? That will be the question we'll seek to utilize God's Word to answer today. Our goal, as is always the case, is not to place our thoughts or our opinions. It is not to set before others what our judgment might be. Our goal is to allow God to speak. And just as the psalmist said, I will hear what the Lord God will speak. Once we appreciate that approach, let's begin with some introductory thoughts about the attendance of the church. And from there, we'll springboard into a study of the text that was read in our hearing just a moment earlier. First, some observations about the attendance that one might make upon looking at various congregations in this area as well as even other places. If you have visited in various places, be it for vacation or be it for other things, you might not be shocked to note some of the following things. It is usually the case that there is a significant intent to be present by brethren at the morning worship service on Sunday. That time when a congregational observance of the Lord's Supper takes place. But it's also not unusual to find that attendance at the Bible study on that Sunday morning isn't as high. There seems to be a lessening or reduction in the number of those who are present at that morning Bible study. If one looks at Sunday evening, sometimes the number is even less. Quite often, 
in visitation or in looking at other congregations, you may observe that that attendance at the evening Sunday worship is perhaps half, and in some places even less than the number who attend at the Sunday morning worship. When you arrive at Wednesday night, sometimes it's about a fourth of those that are present on Sunday morning. But in many cases, again, it certainly is safe to say it's less than the number that attends on Sunday morning. Perhaps in making that listing of observations, it might also be fair to include in it when gospel meetings arise or vacation Bible schools or even singings, as the case may be. We often are in the position of observing that the attendance is significantly less. My family and I have been in attendance at various places, and it certainly is the observation that when Bible times come for gospel meetings, it's sometimes even the members of that congregation will note to us that they're a bit embarrassed when perhaps out of a congregation of 60, there's only 15 there on a Tuesday night for the, for the gospel meeting. It's as though they're apologizing for the other members of the congregation who, who were not there that night. Perhaps our question for today, again, is to ask, is it essential? Is it necessary to be present at these various assemblies and corporate opportunities of the worship of God? These observations that we've just made certainly are not the case at every congregation, but perhaps typically they seem to be that which is, which is the case. As we turn then to the Word of God, we're going to read of passages that will call upon us to seriously question and to look at the nature of what God has declared and our observance and our obedience to it. With those thoughts stated, look with me, if you would, at some of these following ideas. They certainly lead us to say that in the mind of many, or at least some, the attendance at all the worship services other than the morning one is optional. At least that is a thought that would be fair to say from, from the attitude and from the reaction and from the actions of very many. Paul stated in Romans 4 verse 3, What saith the Scripture? As he entered into a dialogue with the congregation at Rome, Paul's observance and his intent was not to rely upon what he thought. His desire was to ask, What saith the Scripture? His desire was to implant within their minds and hearts the very thing that God had said, and that would be that which was binding. It reminds us of that scene in 1 Samuel 3, verse 9, in the days of the long ago when there the aged prophet Eli gave instruction to Samuel. And his instruction was this, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. When God was to speak to Samuel, Eli's advice was, You reply, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Shouldn't that be the aim of our heart today? Speak, God, we will hear what you say, and we'll be intent and desirous of doing that which thou hast commanded. Some of these thoughts then press us onward to looking at the character and the nature of an honest and tender heart as we look at what God has declared. So what then is the verdict? We've asked the question, what about attendance at the various assemblies? Is it essential or not? Let us then try to seek the verdict found in the Word of God. What is it that God has declared? We might begin by saying, based on the text of the Holy Scriptures, that it is not as simple as giving a yes or a no. It can't quite be that basic. Notice, in fact, some texts that lead us to that very thought. In Acts 8, verse 27, we read there of that compelling scene when Philip was called upon and brought to the scene of preaching to that eunuch that had come from Ethiopia. 
But as that verse closed, as we read, that he had come for to worship. But notice in a moment as we lay emphasis upon that word come, that does call upon us to recall Paul's inspired statements to the congregation in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and 33, there he noted that when you come together, now he did proceed to rebuke them for what they were doing when they came together. And then in verse number 33, again, when you come together, it is not for the better. Might we observe then in those three instances, there is the usage of that word come. And the word means for you and me in English exactly as we would anticipate. It means to gather together, to assemble, to come together. Thus, in the New Testament, we read these passages that speak about individuals who came together. Immediately, we might ask, what about those who cannot come together? Those who, for one reason or another, are prohibited. Though they might like to gather together, they are not able to do so. It could well be due to illness or sickness of some variety. It might well involve a crisis or a catastrophe or some other problem beyond their control. In other words, as we notice that the instructions were given about those coming together, if one cannot come together, then these particular instructions would not particularly rebuke those in that situation. Notice, if you will, with me some other ideas concerning that. Isn't it the case that you and I are in a position sometimes of judging when maybe that isn't the best? A person knows when he or she cannot come. Others who are outside may be able to draw reasonable conclusions and may be able, in fact, based on what they know, to answer completely. But each of us know when we are able to come together and when we are not. And thus, when we can come together, we realize that the following passages will govern our conduct and may well rebuke us for failing to do that which we knew to do. Coming together, what a privilege, what a blessing, what an opportunity, as we shall shortly see presented in what we will look at next. So, as we might well appreciate the, that which follows, our discussion henceforth is not to those who cannot come together, we are not discussing about those who are not able to come together, though they might like to. Our discussion relates to those who can come but choose not to. In fact, consider this idea a little bit more clearly, a little bit more in detail, if you will. There are some in our world, as we each are aware of, who seemingly choose many ideas and many activities as opposed to the gathering together with the saints. Those who perhaps will choose a day at the lake rather than to assemble with the saints on Sunday. Or those that would prefer to stay home and watch a ball game on television. Or those that would prefer perhaps to mow the grass or to do their laundry. Or those that would prefer other household chores like to prepare dinner for Sunday night. They choose Sunday to do that as opposed to the assembling together with the saints. It is those kinds of circumstances that is our interest for the remainder of our time today. At this point, as we think about that nature, let us turn to that text in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and let God address us on this very point and on these very ideas. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. As we specifically look at verses 22 and following, I would encourage you to ponder with me 
the notion of a text even in the Old Testament that'll serve as somewhat an introduction to this one. We noted just a moment ago that the scene was that there were those who could not attend, though they might like to. We do have one precedent to that in the Old Testament, interestingly enough. To set that stage, read with me from Numbers, the ninth chapter, beginning in verse number 9. Numbers 9, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. We'll continue reading in a moment, but notice the situation. We recall that God had given commandment to the Israelites of the Old Testament that they were to observe and to keep the Passover. And furthermore, it was to be celebrated or kept in the first month of the year beginning on the, day, on the tenth day. But in other texts, we recall that what if a person were unclean? that is, ceremonially unclean, and thus were not able to participate in that Passover? Did the person thus lose the opportunity to keep it until the next year? Did he or she have to wait an entire year, or were there other opportunities given? Let's continue reading in verse number 11. The fourteenth day of the second month at even shall they keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it under the morning, nor break any bone of it according to all the ordinances of the Passover. They shall keep it. We thus have God's answer. The congregation, whoever could, were to observe it on the first month, 10th through the 14th days. That was the celebrated time. But here God said, if a person by virtue of uncleanness, if an individual by virtue of a, a death in that family, the coming in contact with a dead body. If that person thus were not clean and could not observe the Passover in the first month, he's to be given opportunity in the second month. Thus, God understands when a person cannot come, when he or she is unable to participate in the various assemblies. Our issue again is what if a person simply chooses not to do so, but rather is not prohibited by any other reason. We notice in verse 13, perhaps we're beginning to see what God would have us see. For in verse 13, God there says, But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin." We notice that God fully understood that case when a person could not attend, could not participate in that Passover. But God had no sympathy for the person who simply chose not to do so. For the one who could have but simply didn't. And the reason didn't matter apparently for God said nothing about it. We might well wonder what about the New Testament era? As we come to the new opportunity of the church, does God look upon the assemblies in a similar fashion? We have noted that when those who cannot come together in 1 Corinthians 11, we notice in Hebrews 10, though, we have other statements about the forcefulness of that same attendance. Look with me beginning in verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 10. By a new and living way, 
which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Let us return and place some meat on that skeleton of which we've just read. The Hebrew letter is a penetrating and challenging epistle, isn't it? In fact, a few moments of history and background may mean a great deal to our better appreciation of this text. You see, the book of Hebrews was written, as the name suggests, to individuals who, though they had become Christians and thus had obeyed the gospel, they nonetheless had come out of a history of obedience to the law of Moses. They had grown up under that law. They appreciated the forcefulness of the law of Moses and all the sacrifices in it. However, that does set the stage for this book. When these people were living under the law of Moses, they were not persecuted. They were not oppressed. They were not afflicted, for the world, by and large, didn't persecute Jews. But once they became Christians, the Roman government oppressed them. Their other Jews oppressed them. They met persecution on a constant and continuing basis. And for that reason, they were strongly tempted to give up this Christianity and go back to the law of Moses. We had it easier under that law, they perhaps would say. To that very response, we have 13 chapters in this book of Hebrews challenging them, do not give up on Jesus. Do not go back to that law of Moses. And chapter after chapter lists reasons as to why they should not revert back to the law of Moses but rather why they should cling so strongly and so forcefully to the blessed cross of Christ and the gospel that he brought into, in, into being. Well, as the author reached this chapter 10, we notice specifically in verses 20 and 21, mention is made of the high priest that is ours. None other than Jesus, the one and only high priest of God in this Christian era. Throughout this book, and earlier he had made note of that in verse in chapters 5, 7, and 8, the nature of the benefits we have with Jesus as our high priest. Directly in the aftermath of that, he then notes in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What did the author mean by that? To draw near with a full assurance of faith. That phrase, draw near, that verb means to actually draw near, to approach to, to desire to imitate. And thus we might ask, who or what is the object? Who are we to draw near to? The object was just stated in the previous verse. That high priest, it's ours. Under the Old Testament era, we remember that the high priest was a very important man. He was that person who could enter into the most holy place once a year and offer sacrifices to, for the people. He was the person who, as close as any, served as a go-between between God and the people of Israel. Aaron was that first high priest. 
However, under the New Testament, we too ought to draw near to our high priest. We too should strive to be like him. We should strive to be holy like he is and was. Notice again the wording, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. We are given admonition to try to strive to be like Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 5 verse 1 that we are to, as dear children, follow Christ? Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 in a beautiful and penetrating text, Be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. With each passing day as Christians, we strive, should strive to be more and more like Him. Remember Paul's words in Galatians 2 verse 20? Where there he said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul stated that as Christ lived through him, others should be able to look at him and see a reflection of the love and glory and goodness of God. Also, we remember in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, there the statement that our body should be a testimony to the life of Christ. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? And yet, back to this text in Hebrews, notice that it's not just drawing near. It says, with a true heart. Our drawing near is not to be one of hypocrisy or just one to please men. It is to be done with a true heart, without hypocrisy and without pretending. So much so that he notes in full assurance. We remember the Proverbs writer Solomon told us that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It should be our strong desire to be like Christ, to learn more of his will and his way with each passing day. In fact, as we journey through this life, to day by day be more like him. It would seem as though that was Paul's desire didn't the apostles there in Luke 17 demand, Lord, increase our faith? After Jesus had just encouraged and taught them to pray, they wanted to be more faithful. They wanted to be, to be more, in fact, like him. To say all of this perhaps notes that it leads us to the next verse. For just as surely as we're urged to draw near then to our high priest with a full assurance of faith, we note in verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And doesn't that match so well the nature of this book? We noted that these were beleaguered brethren who were encouraged and perhaps tempted to leave Jesus and go back to the law of Moses. The Hebrew writer said, You hold fast the profession of your faith. That verb, that phrase, hold fast, means to cling tightly to. It means to hold on to very closely and very strongly. The writer thus encourages them, you don't give up on Jesus, but rather, in the face of persecution, you cling to him even tighter. You hold on for dear life, as it were. That very phrase is a remarkable one, isn't it? For what are we to hold on to? It says, the profession of our faith. The American Standard renders that the confession of our hope. In other words, we well remember that as Christians, we made a grand confession, didn't we? 
before we, we were immersed, someone asked us, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And we said, yes, I do. We admitted from the very words of our mouth the greatest statement that could ever be uttered. We made a statement of absolute affirmation of the reality of the Son of God and His death at Calvary for us, the gospel that is He is. We professed we believe Him with all of our heart. To these very individuals, then in essence, the Hebrew writer said, you remember that confession? You cling to it and all of its meaning with all your heart. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We aren't to waver. Earlier, Paul had written to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 and following, he expressly said, we're not to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. It's not that we can be hot today and cold tomorrow. We are to be strong all the time, steadfast for the cause of the Master. So far, we're building a strong statement about what is involved in the life of a Christian, holding fast to one's profession, clinging to Jesus or drawing near to Him. But we aren't quite finished yet. For notice what's in the next verse. Verse number 24. For there he notes that we're also of those who have a responsibility to one another. Isn't it true that you and I might be guilty sometimes of forgetting that part of this passage? We, in fact, enjoy the thought of drawing near to Jesus. And we're challenged by the thought of holding fast the profession of our faith. But notice he isn't done. Notice in the two previous verses he had used the phrase, Let us... And in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, that is a statement of command. In verse 24, the same phrase is used again, let us. But this time, the object, consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The church is a beautiful body, isn't it? A collection of those who are the saved, Ephesians 5.23. The group of those who have stated allegiance to God and who are walking the pathway that leads to heaven. But along that same way, he says, let us consider one another. That word means to watch, to observe, to pay close attention to one another. Why? To provoke unto love and to good works. It's true that most of the time that word provoke has a, has a negative meaning, doesn't it? For instance, on the playground, one student may provoke another one to a fist fight, and two boys may roughhouse and get into an argument and fight one another. Well, one of them has provoked the other one usually. But notice here, the word is not negative. One is to provoke other Christians to love and to good works. We can challenge and encourage one another. Those Christians can then be there to aid one another in the march of increasing faith. So much so that notice there are two objects, to love and to good works. But to say all that is to say that the author closes this statement in verse 25 because he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As he has mentioned all of these, again, note with me, he said we are to draw near to Christ. We are to hold fast to our profession. We are to consider one another to provoke to love and good works. But now he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
That text is not out of place, is it? It builds exactly on the three verses that we've just discussed, those that precede it. Because when those individuals to whom the Hebrew writer wrote, when they were feeling this sense of persecution and when they were feeling the desire to return to the law of Moses, one of the things they were doing was just skipping the assemblies. For we know that if we come together, there may be those there that will persecute us. There may be those who, in fact, will cause us bodily harm. Notice the writer said, not forsaking. That word forsake, as you can well see on the wall in the screen that I put up there, it means to abandon or to neglect. Thus he says, don't you neglect the services of the church. Don't you neglect those assemblies. Because notice the manner of some is there were some who were doing that. There were some who were forsaking the assemblies. They were not gathering with the saints. And as such, he said, but rather we should exhort one another. When we don't assemble, we in fact are not there to encourage each other. There are others who observe that we are not there. And when they realize that we had no reason for not being there, they are distracted. They are discouraged. They are not encouraged in their walk of faith. It is a powerful thought, isn't it? to realize that here he said that those who choose to forsake, those who choose not to assemble, are such that in verse 26, for if we sin willfully. Is it a sin to willfully forsake the assembly? The text says it is. Is it a sin to choose not to be there when I could be? The text says it is. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We appreciate the choice to sin, that willfully refusing to assemble, is something he describes then that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We understand there is but one sacrifice for sins. It was the very body and blood of Jesus. As he offered his body as a sacrifice for us, when we refuse to assemble, we turn our back upon that sacrifice. We refuse to respect and acknowledge His will. We refuse to pay homage to His word and the command He gives. All the while then the writer says that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. To think about these very texts asks us to know then when we do refuse to assemble, we are making that conscious choice to not draw near to Jesus we're making that conscious choice to not hold fast the profession of our faith. We're making that conscious choice to not consider one another to provoke to love and good works. And we're making a conscious choice to forsake the assembly. And when we do that, that reflects so negatively upon the love of God and the character of Christ's sacrifice for us. The powerful thought then that we might use to conclude our lesson today by way of summary would be to draw all of this into a few remarks. In conclusion, to remark about these texts from Hebrews the 10th chapter as well as some of the others that we have read, the assemblies when we come together provide glorification to the name of God. It is in these assemblies where we appreciate the very character of God's word. We laud his name in song. 
We even beseech Him in prayer. We surround His table, and at the other times we sing and the other acts that are there involved. All the while, Ephesians 3.21 reminds us that when we do these things, we are bringing glory to God in as much as we are the church. But to say all that does call us to remember that given the fact it's a good thing to come together, it's encouraging and so very good in accordance to the will of God, what happens when we do not do that? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4.17. When you and I fail to do that which is good, we're guilty of sin. When we know that that's something we should do, it would seem that various lines of thought converge to the discussion then. Is it a sin to willfully forsake the assembly? Of course it is. Hebrews 10.26 has informed us of that, and the text now in James 7 has done the same. May we be encouraged and challenged as we look forward to those times of coming together, that when health and other circumstances permit, we're able and look forward to the beautiful time of being present with the saints, that we can worship the God who in fact has made provision for our salvation and who looks forward one day when the end of our journey in faithfulness has come to welcoming us home to glory. Today, as you think about your life in Christ, what about your recognition of the assemblies? They should be such important times in our week, things that we look forward to in times when we encourage one another and are encouraged by the Word of God. Have you neglected them? Have you approached them too lightly? May we each be drawn closer as we draw near to Jesus and hold fast the profession of our faith. It may be that there's one or more within the sound of my voice that's never become a Christian. You need to render obedience faithfully today. If you know that Jesus died for you and that you are in sin and that there's a home in heaven waiting the faithful, but at this moment it's not yours, today's the day for you to respond. You need to come forward confessing those sins and also a remark of the obedience in your heart and be baptized for the remission of sin. And we'd be happy and honored to aid you with that if you've become a Christian but you haven't been faithful. You have allowed other things too much priority in your life. Come back to that first love. Jesus is waiting with open arms to welcome you home. If we could assist in any way today, we'd be happy to do that. While together we stand and while we sing.